Good morning, Three Rivers Unity Campus. It's good to be back. Um, if you're new, my name is Josh Pilgrim. I'm the teaching pastor at the Kingston Highway Campus. And um, Mitch and I have this joke now um, from Brian Regan that we feel like two log trucks passing each other on the highway, right? You need logs over here and you need logs over there, but a phone call would have saved a whole lot of trouble, right? We're just switching logs, but we're switching sermons today. It's a little bit more than logs. And if that joke didn't make sense to you, sorry. Um, if you have a Bible, turn to Acts chapter 17. And um, before I begin, I do want to recognize someone who's here, one of our global partners. Uh, Carl is here. Carl, just raise your hand. If you don't know Carl, you need to meet Carl. Um, at, not now, but after this message, right? After church, um, go shake Carl's hand, introduce yourself, um, and, and he can tell you about his global work in, in dangerous places of the world. In Bible translation, he is... He has a gifted mind, and the Lord is using him greatly. And so um, make sure to, to talk to Carl and let him know you're praying for him and, and, and uh, let him know that you're supporting him. Acts chapter 17, we're continuing our study in the book of Acts. And today I want to talk about this subject, turning the world upside down. Turning the world upside down from Acts chapter 17. Paul's just gone through Philippi. Things were pretty tough, right? He gets incarcerated, locked up in a prison. But that doesn't stop him. He continues on to Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17. Let's, let's begin reading Acts chapter 17, verse 1. Acts 17, verse 1. <clears throat> it says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, who I proclaim to you, is the Christ, he's the Messiah. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob. Uh, interesting point here. Uh, King James renders these wicked men of the rabble lesser men of the baser sort. Right? Put it in the JP version uh, they were bums, right? Lesser men of the baser sort. These wicked men of the rabble, the Jews formed this mob. They set the city in an uproar and they attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Now listen to this verse. And when they could not find them, when they could not find Paul and Silas, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Now, verse 10, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing, as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. And those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Turning the world upside down. Let's pray together. 
Father, this morning we gather as your people. And in all of our church work, in church planting and preaching and worship, we are here building our boat, setting our sails. But there's not a thing we can do this morning to make the wind blow. Father, we need you to send the power of your Holy Spirit. And breathe on us today and breathe life in our hearts, open our minds, open our hearts, open our ears to hear and to understand and to be quick to obey your word today. Empower our work, strengthen us for the mission you've called us to. And I pray that this message today would not be with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that our faith will not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of Almighty God. And Father, would you do a work today in such a way that it would lead us to obedience to you and a filling of your spirit that would turn the world upside down. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Growing up, my teachers and even sometimes my parents would try to use reverse psychology to try to make me act right. And they would say things, my teachers would say things to me and my buddies when we would goof off. And they would say things like, if you don't start acting right, you're not going to amount to a... Hill of beans, right? Y'all heard that? Y'all, they told y'all that too, okay. And I remember thinking, well, that's, I, ne- I never got the analogy growing up. The metaphor made no sense. Like, what do you mean hill of beans? I, I said, I'm going to amount to a hill of beans, doggone it. And so I, I live my life thinking I'm going to do my best to try to amount to a, a hill of beans. And I don't think it's worth much, but I think I'm, I'm getting there, right? 31 years old, I want to amount to a hill of beans. But, in all seriousness, I have this fear in my life. And I remember ever since I became a Christian, even in high school, I had this fear that my life would never really count for God. I had this fear that I would get to the end of my life and I would look back and only see wasted opportunities and squandered potential. This fear of getting to the end of my life and realizing I had wasted my time on lesser things. And the truth is, that's a haunting fear for me. I hope it's a desire for you as well. I hope that you want to matter. I hope that you want your life. You want to be somebody who, because you live, there's a difference in the world. And I read scripture and I read about Paul and Silas and it causes this desire in my heart. I want to be a man known for turning the world upside down. At least the part of the world that I have some influence over, right? I want to have some influence. I want to turn the world upside down. And that's what I want for all of us. I pray that for Three Rivers Church, that we would have the reputation of 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 turning the world upside down. As Leonard Ravenhill would say, that hell would know our names. That hell would fear and tremble at our impact against the kingdom of darkness. And that's exactly what Paul and Silas were accused of in Acts chapter 17. After coming to Thessalonica, verse 6 says, they could not find Paul and Silas. So they dragged Jason and his brothers out into the city and they accused them of being men who have turned the world upside down. Paul and Silas are accused of turning the world upside down, but they're not the only ones doing this, right? The church itself is turning the world upside down and they are only following in their master's footsteps. They are only doing what Jesus had done before. They are imitating Christ who through Jesus' life and ministry, he turned everything in the world upside down. Have you thought of this? That when Jesus came into the world, he turned the world's systems up on its head. I want you to imagine this morning a pyramid. Think of the pyramid of of the world and the world's standards. Who stands at the top of the pyramid at the paramount, the most important people in our society? If we were to have that social pyramid today, maybe the world would put kings and presidents and royal officials and wealthy bureaucrats, the elite of society at the top. And if you go a little lower on that pyramid, maybe you see the highly educated The professionals, the doctors, the lawyers, the wealthy upper class. And then you get down on the next level. That's the normal folk, right? Respectable middle classers work hard. They have a respectable amount of knowledge and wisdom. And then you get down to the very bottom of that pyramid. The very bottom and you see the outcasts. 
Maybe the poor, the fool, the little child, and even the baby. And the wisdom of the world comes along and says, look at what a great difference there is between the social elites at the top and the insignificant children at the bottom of society. Look at the wide distinction between the educated doctor at the top and the ignorant fool and the peons at the bottom. And Jesus comes and turns everything up on its head. He turns the world upside down and he says things like, unless you become like the little child, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Consider your own calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of us were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not and brought to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God has chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom. And so Jesus comes to the world's pyramid and turns it upside down. He turns the world's systems on its head he turns the world's values upside down he comes and he preaches and he says it's the poor in spirit who receive the kingdom of heaven it's those who mourn who will be comforted it's those who are meek who will inherit the earth it's those who hunger and thirst for righteousness those are the ones who will be satisfied jesus says things like you've heard it said In the world, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. He's turning the world upside down. It's been said, don't allow anyone to infringe upon your rights. But Jesus says, whoever would sue you and take your shirt, give him your coat also. You've heard it said, hate your enemies and retaliate against those who persecute you. But I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus is turning the world upside down. And he doesn't just turn the world upside down that we know. He turns the world in our own hearts upside down. Right. The world would say that death is the final word in our existence, that we live and we die. And that is the end. And the world teaches that the grave is our final destination And then our bodies return to dust and we are no more. But even Jesus even reverses the curse of death. And he takes the sting out of the grave. And he turns the world upside down in his own resurrection. And his resurrection secures something greater for us even today. Jesus has turned the world upside down even in our own hearts. Right. The curse of sin, the power of sin no longer dominates us. We don't have to be dominated by sin anymore because the world has been turned upside down. Old things pass away and the new things come. We're new creatures. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Is that true for you this morning? Jesus gives us new desires and new affections, a hatred of the fleeting pleasures of sin and a growing desire for holiness and purity of heart. So I want to ask you, has Christ turned your world upside down? Have you been converted? Has your life been changed? And the truth is, church, brothers and sisters, our lives will never amount to anything eternally significant until we've been transformed by the power of Christ. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to point out in this passage four reasons why the early church turned the ancient world upside down. Now, this isn't just four steps to us turning the world upside down today, but it's pictures. It shows us what would it look like? What would we need to do to make an impact on the world today to have eternal significance? And so here's the first point I want to make today. How did the world How did they turn the world upside down? And how can we turn the world upside down? The early church turned the world upside down first through passionate commitment to evangelism. Passionate commitment to evangelism. First thing I want to point out here is that Paul had a method to his evangelistic work. Right? He leaves Philippi. He comes into Thessalonica. And verse 2 says that Paul went in, as was his custom, 
And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving it was necessary for Jesus to suffer and to rise from the dead. He's committed to evangelism and everywhere that Paul went, he was preaching the gospel. And verse three says that Paul entered the synagogue as was his custom. He had a method and his method was to go to the Jews first And I would point out here that every, every time in the book of Acts that Paul goes into a synagogue and preaches the gospel to Jews, he gets persecuted for it. He gets beaten for it. And every time from now on in the book of Acts, every time he goes into the Jewish synagogue, he's going to walk out with a beating. He's going to be persecuted. He's going to be driven out of town. It's going to cost him dearly. And yet, Paul continues to go to the Jews first. Right In every city that had a synagogue, Paul made sure to go to the Jews first to share the gospel. And he explains this. If you read Romans 1, verse 16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to the Jews first and to the Gentiles. In Romans 10, verse 1, right, Paul has this prayer and he says, my, my prayer and my heart's desire is that Israel would be saved. He desperately wants his fellow countrymen to know Jesus. And he was even willing to be cursed for their sake if only they could believe. And so he always went to the Jews first. Now this is partly because it's low-hanging fruit, right? He doesn't have to go in there and explain to them who God is like he's going to do in Athens a few verses later. He doesn't have to go in there and explain to them all the Old Testament because they know the Bible. And so he can start on common ground, and he has low-hanging fruit here. People that who are God-fearers that know the Scriptures. And so they would have the most in common with Paul and his message. And so this is, te- this is a teaching moment for us. Do you have a method to your evangelism? Now, I'm not telling you you need to go into a Jewish synagogue and start there. That may not be your context, right? But who are the people you relate to? And what's your method? What's your plan for for introducing them to Jesus. It's good for all of us to find our niche, to find an evangelistic plan that works for you. Plan your work. Have have a plan and work your plan. But it's better to have a plan than to do nothing at all, right? One of the great evangelists in church history was D.L. Moody. And one day a lady criticized D.L. Moody for his methods of evangelism and attempting to win people to the Lord and, and She said, I don't like the way you do evangelism. And D.L. Moody said, well, ma'am, I don't like the way that I do it either, but tell me how you do it. And the lady said, I don't do it. And so Moody said, ma'am, I like the way that I do it better than the way of you're not doing it. And so we don't want to criticize somebody else's work if they're just trying to work their plan if we're not doing anything, right? So find a plan that works for you. We need an evangelistic plan like Paul had. Mark Connolly shared his plan this way. He said, this past week I was getting my oil changed and I had a chance to present the gospel to the guy in the waiting room with me. He says, for me, waiting rooms are the best places for evangelism because the people are sitting there with nothing to do. The oil change waiting room has been particularly fruitful for me and it assures me that at a minimum I'm going to personally share the gospel every 3,000 miles. Right? I like that. Have some plan. Have something that you do. There's, there's, there's all types of tools and all types of resources for us. The main thing is for us to do something. And so Paul starts in the synagogues. And he gives us this biblical framework. There's some key words here. If you take notes or if you're, if you're, un, if you're into writing in your Bible, there's some words here that you can underline that show how Paul did evangelism. Right? And he didn't just do it one way. So I want to point out six words if you want to underline them. Four of the words are what Paul did. Two of the words are how the people responded. Okay, so let me me point out these words to you. Verse two. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned. There's the first word. You can underline it, write that down. Reasoned with them from the scriptures. Verse three, here's your second word. Explaining. Third word, and proving. 
that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And saying, here it is, this Jesus whom I, fourth word, proclaim to you. Verse 4, and some of them were persuaded. That's the first response. And the second word, and joined Paul and Silas. So those are the four words. Reasoned, explaining, proving, proclaimed, and then the people were persuaded and joined. So let me explain these really quick. This gives us a, a, a method or a framework to understand evangelism. And the first word that's used here, it says Paul went into the synagogue and he reasoned with them. I'm not in to try to impress you with Greek words, but this one's kind of important. It's dialegami. It's the word for dialogue. All right. And so Paul goes in and he dialogues with these people. This has this has a conversational aspect to it. So one of the first aspects of evangelism is to have a conversation with people. Talk to them, right? You don't have to lead in with a sinner's prayer or a Roman road. You just come in and start asking people questions about what they believe and talking to them. And the objective of this type of gospel-centered dialogue is to give due weight to the hearers and listen to their own viewpoints with the goal, not at first, but ultimately the goal of correcting their misunderstandings of the gospel. Like you don't just want to jump in and correct people immediately. Listen to them and ask them, hey, what what's your understanding of the gospel? What's your religious view? What's your background? Where do you come from? What do you believe about God? And just ask questions. They teach you this in sales that you can ask, you can repeat three words to anybody and they'll tell you anything you want to know. I'm just curious. What do you believe? I'm just curious. What's your religious background? Hey, I'm just curious. Um, what do you believe about God? You can, you can ask them anything and they'll say, Hey, I'm just curious. What, you know, what, what do you have for supper? Hey, I'm just curious. What tooth, what kind of toothpaste do you use in the morning? And they'll just tell you because you're just curious. Just curious. And people just aren't threatened by that. So just say, hey, I'm just curious. What, what's your religious background? What do you believe? And as you talk to someone, you're going to hear more and more about what they think about God and about the gospel. See, evangelism's more than just handing out a tract or cramming Bible verses down someone's throat. Right? It requires explanation and listening. And often one of the best questions you can ask someone is, Hey, what's your understanding of the gospel? My pastor, this bald-headed guy at church asked me this question. What is the gospel? I'm just curious. How would you answer that question? And wait to see what they say. And once you know what someone else believes, then you're better equipped to answer their objections and questions. There's dialogue. He reasons with them. Second word, he explains. It says he was explaining that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer. This word literally means to open. He was opening to them. And we get this same picture in Luke chapter 24 on the road to Emmaus. Remember the disciples that spoke to Jesus? They say, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? When Jesus opened the scriptures, he was opening them in a way to explain who he was. This means opening scriptures for people to see the necessity of Jesus' suffering and death and resurrection. He's explaining. Third word, proving. Proving. Proving means that Paul carefully answered questions that were posed to him. Right? You talk to Jews about the cross. The cross is a stumbling block. And they're going to have a lot of questions. And so Paul responds to their objections. He demonstrates the validity of his claims. And today we call this apologetics. That's what apologetics is. It's proving. It's giving a reason. It's answering the questions posed to you by society. And the fourth word, we're told that he was proclaiming to them. Now, this is just pure preaching, right? The word is that of a herald. It's the guy who stands out in the middle of town screaming the news. Extra, extra, read all about it. Jesus has been crucified and risen from the dead, right? He's just announcing it. This is, this is not a time for discussion. Sometimes the most powerful thing you can do in evangelism is to simply and clearly and passionately and powerfully declare the truth of Jesus' death and resurrection and watch the power of the gospel transform people's hearts. These next two words have to do with the people's response. It says that they were persuaded. Some of them were persuaded. 
The goal of apologetics and the goal of evangelism is not simply discussion so that we can just know what everybody believes. The aim of evangelism is ultimately to persuade and to convince someone to believe something and to act on the basis of what is recommended. In other words, evangelism aims at a response. A response so complete that we would call it conversion. Which kind of is this third, this last word, they joined them. This is the only time this word is used in the New Testament. But the idea is that these new believers joined the company of the disciples. Their minds had been changed and they made a decision about the truth and they took the next step. And so let's not ignore the fact that the reason that Paul and Silas were turning the world upside down is because no matter where they went, they were passionately committed to evangelism. And so this just as a challenge to you to examine yourself. Are you intentional in trying to bring the gospel to bear in other people's lives? The second reason they turned the world upside down. They're committed to evangelism. Second reason we turn the world upside down through wholehearted allegiance to Jesus and his kingdom. Wholehearted allegiance to Jesus and his kingdom. Verse 5 says that the Jews became jealous and these lesser men of the baser sort decide to incite a mob, right? They, they get these bums to come and, and stir up the crowd so that Paul and Silas will have to leave. And it says they drag Jason, some of the brothers, before the city and they, they're shouting, these are the men who've turned the world upside down. And then they make a false accusation. Verse 7, I want you to notice what they accuse them of. Or verse 8, I'm sorry. Or verse 7, yeah, verse 7. Jesus, or Jason, Jesus, Jason has received Paul and Silas and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar saying that there is another king, Jesus. They, they start to complain to the officials and say, y'all, they're talking about there's another king and it's not Caesar. This is this new king with a new kingdom named Jesus. And you have to give them credit. At least they were right. They weren't wrong, were they? Yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly what we're doing, right? We're exactly teaching that there is another king. Jesus was accused of the very same thing in Luke 23, verse 2. It says they, they began to accuse him and they brought him before Pilate. And it says, they said to Pilate, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So Jesus himself was accused of this very thing. And it was true, right? Jesus was king. And although his kingdom was not of this world, his kingdom was turning the present world upside down. Pilate found this out firsthand. I love this passage in John 19. He gets to Jesus and, and someone he hears that Jesus is being accused of being the son of God. And he, he turns to Jesus and he says, where are you from? Because I'm pretty sure you were from Bethlehem. You were from Nazareth. What do you but you say you're the son of God. Where where are you from? And Jesus doesn't answer, which is just great. And then Pilate looks at him and says, sir, are you not going to answer me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? And Jesus' answer is priceless, right? This mic drop. Pilate, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Boom, right? He's saying, I am the king and there's not a thing you can do in your position of authority to control me. I am here by my own accord. And as followers of Jesus, we do believe that Jesus is our king. We're citizens of another world. Our desires for his will to be done, for his kingdom to come. And might I point out, that's why we don't have to freak out during this current election cycle. Jesus is our king. And we preach the gospel of the kingdom so that his kingdom will be brought to bear on earth as it is in heaven. This past week, I was with Mitch in Dallas, Texas. We were at Northwood Church at what's called the Mosaic Conference. This is a multi-ethnic church planning conference. And one of the men who spoke up was a, 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 a Mexican-American. He, he grew up in Los Angeles. He was never never lived in Mexico. But he, he, he talked about when he goes back to visit some of his family in Mexico, he talks to them about immigration and about them coming to America. 
And he says, Americans think that Mexicans come to, from Mexico to America because they're, they're coming to the promised land. They're coming here for freedom. He says, Mexicans don't view it that way. He says, they view America as Egypt. Mexicans come here for the same reason that Jacob and his sons left their homes and moved to Egypt. Because there's no food at home. There's no work. And they're, so they're, they're coming here because they have to. And then he... And then what he said is, the point is that we as Americans, our problem a lot of times is we think that we're living in the promised land today. That America is our promised land and somehow some, some person is going to promise to make this country great again. But we have forgotten that this is Egypt for us. We're in Egypt today. This is not home This is not our promised land. We belong to another kingdom. Philippians 3 verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven. So I want to ask you, what's in your wallet? Are you carrying, are you carrying your passport or do you have a spiritual green card that shows, I'm just here for a moment. I'm just here for a time, but I don't really belong here. My home is in heaven. I belong to another kingdom. I have another king and his name is Jesus. And so church, our, our devotion to Jesus and His kingdom, our allegiance to Christ alone will turn the world upside down. Point number three. We turn the world upside down. Commitment to evangelism. Allegiance to Jesus' kingdom. Third, we turn the world upside down through radical obedience to Scripture. Radical obedience to Scripture. Now, Paul and Silas are forced to leave, right? They have to go to Berea. We're told in verse 10 that because of the Jews' jealousy and because they started a mob, Paul and Silas are forced to leave and they go to a smaller town called Berea. And I want you to look at verse 10. I want you to notice where they go first when they get there. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the what? Jewish synagogue. Got a method, right? Got a method to his evangelism. Which blows me away because you would eventually he would just say, man, I'm done with this. right? I'm just going to go to the Gentiles because they're a lot nicer than the Jewish people are. Now, before we look at these people, these Jews in Berea, because we're told that these Jews are more noble than the ones in Thessalonica. I want to say something about Paul's care for the Thessalonian church. I don't want to leave them just yet. Okay, so before we get into Berea. I want you to, from Berea, let's look back at Thess, the church at Thessalonica, Thessalonica. I don't even know how to say it. I'm torn. Any of you scholars can correct me later. When you read, this is, this is a tip for reading your Bible, okay? And this helped me. When you read the Bible, and when you read the Old Testament, maybe you read through the Old Testament and you get through all the narrative, you read about the kings, you read about the exile, and then you start reading through the prophets and you're reading stuff like Habakkuk and Nahum and Isaiah. And sometimes you read it and you're like, what are they talking about? Anybody ever been there? Right? There have been a lot of Bible reading plans that died in Isaiah. Right? Because you just, where are we, man? Like I was, I was tracking with David and Solomon. There's a story I could keep up. But now, man, he's talking about goats and lambs and stuff. And I, I don't even know what he's talking about. Where are we? This is why it's helpful to read the prophets in the back of the Old Testament at the same time that you read the narrative stories. Because the prophets were not separated from the narrative. The prophets are all interspersed throughout the narrative. Does that make sense? So that means when you start reading Nehemiah and you start reading Ezra, you also need to go to the back and start reading about Haggai. Those are the guys prophesying during that time, right? You, when, you, when you're reading about the time of David, you want to read certain prophets, right? Prophets that were alive during David's time. And so you read the prophets while you're reading the Old Testament. Does that make sense? That will make your Bible reading make so much more sense. And the prophets will open up to you when you realize who they were prophesying to. Now, the same thing happens when you read the New Testament and the book of Acts and the letters functions the same way. If you really want to understand the letters of the New Testament, you would do well to go back and read the book of Acts that corresponds with the church that Paul was writing to. Now, where did Paul just leave? He just left from the church at Thessalonica. Let me see if you're paying attention. How many weeks was he there? 
Did you catch that little detail? Three. Good job, Eric. Three, right? Three. Three Sabbaths. Three Sabbaths, and then he left. And he wasn't allowed to go back. So what do you do when you have these new Christians, these people in Thessalonica who are believing the gospel, what do you do when you can't go back to them? You write them a letter. You might even write two letters. Oh wait, he did, right? First and second Thessalonians. And so when you, when you read this, I would encourage you, like when you, when you think about it, when you read through the Bible, and he just came from Philippi, right? This is just an example. Acts chapter 16, he just comes back from Philippi, and you can think when you read the book of Philippians, he's writing to Lydia. Who had her heart opened up by the Lord. He's writing to that slave girl who got uh, saved, right? He's writing to the Philippian jailer in his household. That's who he's writing to when he writes to the Philippians. So that means he was thinking of Lydia after God had already opened her heart to believe the word. When he writes Philippians 1 verse 6, Lydia, he who began a good work in you will complete it on the day of Christ Jesus. He can look at that Philippian jailer who was in there the night Paul and Silas were singing hymns to God. And he can write Philippians 4, 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. That just carries new weight to it when you realize who he's writing to. And so, if you want to know how Paul felt about the Thessalonians. That he just left after only three weeks of ministry. Then all you have to do is read the two letters that he wrote to that church. In fact, I would encourage you today, it would be a good practice for you as a family this next week. For you men, fathers, husbands, daddies, read read a chapter of 1 Thessalonians every day this week with your family. Right? Students, read it in your dorm with, with, with your small group. Right? In your radical life groups. This would be a great book to discuss maybe tonight as you're thinking about, well, what did Paul do in Thessalonica? Just take an overview of 1 Thessalonians. It won't take you long to read it. Now, I don't have time to go in depth like I would like, but when you know the historical context of Acts 17 and how Paul was ripped away from these brand new Christians, then you're going to better understand the sense of urgency he had when he writes to those Christians that he left there and they're suffering greatly. And so we're about to get to the Bereans and the Bereans were known for reading their Bibles to make sure this was true. This is a great way for you to be like the Bereans this week is to go back and read first Thessalonians. I'm going to point out just a few scriptures. Think about this suffering church in Thessalonica and hear Paul's words to them. First Thessalonians one verses four through eight. We know brothers loved by God that he has chosen you. We know he's chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction. In the middle of a mob, right, is when they received the word. In much affliction. You received it with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. So we don't need to say anything. Paul and Silas weren't the only ones turning the world upside down. It was the Thessalonians as well by their world famous faith. Another passage, 1 Thessalonians 2 verses 1 and 2. Brothers, you yourselves know that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. I just You get this idea of where Paul was coming from. Last one, and then I'll move on. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. We thank God constantly for this, Thessalonians, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Which leads to this last, this point here about, about the Bereans. The Thessalonians didn't just receive it as a word from a man, they received it as the word of God. Now how did the Bereans do this? Look at the Bereans in verse 11. Now, these Jews, these Berean Jews, were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. We're told that these Jewish Bereans were more noble than the ones in Thessalonica for two reasons. 
The first reason is that they were more noble is that they received the word with eagerness. Right? They wanted it. Eagerness. Give, me, give it to me. Feed me. Right? I want this word. That word eagerness means readiness of mind and zeal. Passionate and readiness of mind. This was a passionate hunger for the word. Give us the word, Paul. Tell us what the word says. We want it. We need it. So I want to ask you some questions, Three Rivers. Did you come to church this morning with eagerness to hear the word of God? I think you do. This is one reason I love this church is because the bar is set high, right? You can't bring in some limp-wristed, panty-wasted, compromising message, right? You've got to... I don't know where that came from. You've got to... You've got to... Man, you've got to bring it here because you guys want the Word. But I'm going to ask you, did you come with a certain expectation that God was going to speak to you today? Did you come with your mind ready to be engaged with biblical truth? One of the things that I love about this church is the high bar of expectation you have for pastors. Right? There is the seriousness about the biblical text that just gives me great joy in preparation every week. Knowing it's just easy to feed hungry people. So did you come hungry today? Right? We want to be fed. We want the word. They received it with eagerness, but they also received the word with examination. The second reason they were more noble than the Jews in Thessalonica is they received it with eagerness, but also with, ex, with examination. It says that they daily examined the scriptures to see if these things were so. Now, real quick, who was preaching to them? This isn't a hard question. I'm not trying to trick you. Who were they listening to preaching to them? Paul, right? That would be Paul the Apostle. That would be Paul the Apostle who wrote half of your New Testament, right? That Paul. And even though it was Paul the Apostle, they didn't just take his word for it. They said, well, we got to go check this out. We got to go home and see if what Paul said was true. They still tested the validity of his message by the Scriptures. So I want to ask you some questions. Do you daily read the scriptures to test your own heart? Do you exam here's one. Do you examine the sermon each week to see if what we say is biblical? Or do you just simply take our word for it because Mitch and me are, are your pastors? If if the Bereans che checked up Paul. How much more should y'all be saying? I need to go check, see if what Mitch said was right. And see what, don't take it for granted. Now I have, I don't want to deceive you and I want to get it right the first time, but listen, don't just take it for granted. And so many people fall into this trap. They turn on their television and just because somebody preaches on TV and they've got a big church, we're going to listen to them. We're going to swallow everything whole. Be careful. There are wolves that will deceive you. And so you need to be careful. If we're going to be a church that turns the world upside down, we cannot be half-hearted in our devotion to Scripture. And so let me say this one more thing and I'll move on. Beware of letting Bible studies replace your study of the Bible. And what I mean by Bible studies is not just... Not, I don't mean you gathering together with people to study the Bible. I mean books about the Bible that are Bible studies. Nothing wrong with that. Beth Moore, God bless her, right? But, but ladies, don't let Beth Moore be your Bible. And don't just be satisfied with re getting regurgitated of what Beth Moore's chewed up and spitting back into your mouth like a, like a bird spits into her chicks. Nothing wrong with Beth Moore. Don't hear that, okay? You want to do a Beth Moore Bible study? Go for it, all right? But be careful. And don't just depend on that. Right? I, I can't just depend on, on, some, on, on some Bible study that Francis Chan or, or, or John Piper comes out with and say, well, this is my Bible study. No. Beware of letting Bible studies replace your study of the Bible. There are thousands of Bible study materials in print today, and they are supposed to simplify the task of studying the Scriptures. And they may simplify our study, but often they can become a substitute to careful study of the Word. 
And if we don't examine the scriptures for answers, people read the answers that others have already given to the questions they ask. And this is an age today when more people are so used to receiving pre-digested material from TV that they're going to the, going to the scriptures to do inductive Bible study is just strange to them. And it's hard. And so Bible study that pleases God is an expression of faith. What I mean by that is when you study the Bible, the way you please God in your study of Scripture is to come with eagerness and expectation and say, Lord, I need you. I am needy. You alone can satisfy my need. You have spoken a message. It's recorded in the Bible. And I'm coming to this book hungry, like a hungry baby seeking its mother's milk. Feed me, Lord, from your word. We are the people of one book, one book, and it's a hymn book, not H-Y-M-N, H-I-M. This is the hymn book. It is all about him, right? And we're all about this hymn book, and we want to know this hymn book. We want to know the hymn in the book, all right? And so let's let's make scripture our priority. And let's let's make this where we where we have our rule of faith. When we when you hear a sermon or you hear a message, you ought to test everything. Don't let your mind just check out on Sunday afternoon. Don't just, when you get to the dinner table, don't let it start thinking just about football. Nothing wrong with dinner, nothing wrong with football. But, but train your mind to say, let's talk about the sermon for a few minutes before. And not just to criticize, I don't like how he looks or he spit or he said something that wasn't funny. I didn't like that. Test the merit of the words, right? Talk about content. Is this really true? What does this mean for us? If we're really going to be like the Bereans. Let me point out something really quick. I'll move to the last point. I want you to notice something here. There's a pattern. And it's happened twice. Once in verse 12. And once in verse 4. Verse 4 says. Some of them were persuaded. And joined Paul and Silas. As did a great many of the devout Greeks. And not a few of the leading women. Verse 12. The result of the Bereans hearing the word, many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. Just want to point this out. That there's a rhythm being established here that where the gospel of Jesus Christ is fully and faithfully preached, strong, gifted, driven women flourish. Not just the men. This is countercultural to this day. To the ancient days. But here we see that these, these women who have been, who have been ostracized and, and haven't been allowed to, to flourish like men, these women here are drawn to the gospel and they flourish. Now the outs, now the walls outside of Christianity, outside of our world, it's repressive. But nothing has done, and no movement has done more for the welfare, the growth, and the flourishing of women in culture than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nothing. These women are intelligent, they're gifted. It keeps saying that they're in high standing. The Bible is making a point that these are not just some kind of weak women, okay? They're saying, they're saying these are, these are gifted women. These are, these are strong women. These are flourishing women. They're bold. They're brilliant. And with gladness, they're in glad submission to the gospel of Jesus. I'm running out of time. Let me move to this last point. How do we turn the world upside down? Commitment to evangelism. Allegiance to the kingdom. Radical obedience to the scripture. And finally, we'll turn the world upside down. Through unwavering devotion to the mission. Unwavering devotion to the mission. I'm just going to conclude with a real simple point here. Paul didn't give up. Ever. Right? If it's me, if I just got thrown into prison and and started a mob, I'm probably taking a sabbatical, right? I'm done. But not Paul. Verse 13. It says, when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. And so the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. And those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. The reason Paul was turning the world upside down 
was because no matter how much the world tried to stop him, he kept pressing on. He would say, one thing I do, one thing I press on. I forget what lies behind. I strain forward for what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. All right, we're told that these morons from Thessalonica didn't have anything better to do with their time travel 40 miles or so to Berea to harass Paul and his ministry. They stir up the crowds and Paul's forced to leave again, this time for Athens. And the point is that he kept moving onward to Athens instead of going home. Persecution never stopped him from the mission. It just redirected him. Great missionary to Africa, David Livingston, said, I am prepared to go anywhere as long as it is forward. I am prepared to go anywhere as long as it is forward. And so if you're discouraged today, if, if maybe you've been distracted by the cares of this life, all of the responsibilities that you have, and you've been thinking about, I just don't know if this is worth it. I don't know if it's worth putting the time and effort into what I'm doing. Keep going. Press on. Don't quit. Three Rivers, regardless of what happens this Tuesday in the presidential election, regardless of the challenges we may face in the days, of he- days ahead, No matter what government legislation may be passed down, no matter who sits on the Supreme Court, let us remember that we serve another king with a greater kingdom and that he will be with us to the end of the age. Let us continue to press on despite great challenges, seeking to turn the world upside down as we pray for God's kingdom to come and for his will to be done. And church today, let us worship gladly with the great joy of knowing that no matter who sits in the Oval Office or whoever occupies Caesar's throne, our God is marching on. Let's pray. Father, you are so good to us. And as we have already sung, you are both lion and the lamb. You are the lamb who was sacrificed for our sin and you are the la- you are the lion that has been raised and you are the victorious king. We have sung that we are no longer slaves to fear, for we are your children. And you have given us your Holy Spirit, your power, your strength, that no matter what stands up against us in this world, we have faith and we have hope that you can use us and that we are more than conquerors through him who first loved us. The Father, today, today, Recenter our minds. Center us around your word. Center us in worship of Christ today with great hope. Keep our eyes fixed and focused on the mission at hand. And Lord, by your grace, if you choose to do so, would you turn the world upside down through our faith and obedience? Be glorified today in our worship. Help us to worship in spirit and in truth. For your glory and our joy.